This is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities podcast series. I'm delighted to say that my guest today is uh, Alison Nimmo, Dame Alison Nimmo, who is recently uh, the chief executive of the Crown Estate in the UK, an enormously important organisation. But before that, had had a very distinguished career in urban regeneration and planning, um, regenerating English cities, and ultimately culminating in her design work on the Olympics in London. What she doesn't know about urban regeneration and planning isn't worth knowing. This is a great interview. Interrupted just a few times by some internet connectivity issues, but basically fantastic. Please listen. Alison, I'm delighted to talk to you because you've got, um, I always like talking to people about what I call their greatest hits. Uh, And you've got many I want to talk about. And uh, it's sort of, it's broadly in the area that we, we all love in this podcast. And we have people listening all over the world. And it's partly about urban transformation, urban regeneration, urban policy, housing, the future of cities, you know, it's all, all the terrain that you've lived and breathed and done work in. Um, but I want to start because I think, uh, in a sense, part of your earlier story is actually the early story of like urban regeneration becoming a real thing in uh, in Britain uh, sometime in the 90s, I would say. So I was going to say to you, can we start with Manchester? And what, and what do I mean by Manchester? So what happened in Manchester? And how did you get to work in Manchester? What was that all about, Alison? Well, Manchester is a city in the north of England, fantastic city. Um, and I went there to university. Couldn't get a job there. Um, I studied uh, planning. And I, then I spent the next sort of 10 years, well, apart from a, a, a short stint in Sydney working in the planning department, yes. um, uh, 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 sort of ended up in London for 10 years. And then I got the opportunity to go back to Manchester to actually work with a consultancy. And basically, I'd become a charter surveyor as well as a, a planner. And I sort of found my niche in life, which was uh, regeneration. But it was really about consulting and writing strategies to regenerate places. Went back to Manchester and um, I was doing a lot of work in Liverpool on big sort of European programs. And then um, the largest bomb in um, on mainland uh, UK exploded on a sort of sunny Saturday afternoon, 15th of June, 1986, sorry, 1996. Uh, and I suppose my whole world changed after that, really, because it, it sort of damaged a, a sort of a mile square of the city centre. And it was just a really shocking thing to happen to your city. Yeah, I remember. Um, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind this kind of personal thing. I, I can't remember if you knew this, but I, I'd been I'd worked in Manchester for about six months back in 1979 to early 80s, when it was probably like many places, many in deck X sort of industrial places at its lowest point in, in in many respects, and especially in the city centre, it was it was pretty. It was I, I think well, I remember it being. I, I lived in Ancoats for about, and that was like you know you know I come from South Wales and thought I knew about like poverty but geez this was like the roughest thing i'd ever been in i'm just saying that manchester was a great city in the 19th century and was like the center of the industrial revolution in many respects but it left a legacy of of buildings and challenges and like a lot of places it kind of lost its economic rationale um and then all of a sudden this bomb goes off um and it was like a terrible happening it was a big part of the kind of the ira campaign had come to mainland Britain, as it were. Uh, but then things started to happen. So how did you get involved? 
So um, I just remember going taking the tram. The only thing that went through the Bomdar area was a tram, which had been a sort of a new investment in the city centre, and sitting on the tram and looking at this sort of, you know, destroyed city centre um, and just thinking, I've got to do something to help. And I persuaded my boss at KPMG to loan me to the city council, Howard Bernstein, now Sir Howard Bernstein at the city council, um, uh, for three months because they were setting up a, a task force to spearhead the recovery. Um, and I sort of, I had all the skills to help them write the strategy and get a master plan together to sort of get the show on the road. And I was really good at leveraging money out of central government. And yeah, one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was getting up every morning and rebuilding a city. And when Howard went to be chief exec of the city council a year later, he left me in charge at the tender age of 30. There I was putting into practice all the stuff I thought I knew about uh, regeneration. And it was an extraordinary thing, a whole city coming together um, and getting up every day and just focusing on one thing, which was not just to get the city back on its feet, but to turn the adversity of the bomb into an opportunity to replan and reshape, because it wasn't the most beautiful bit of Manchester. Right. Uh, and it just sort of laid the foundations of, you know, fast forward 30 years to now, um, a rejuvenated city because there was very little housing in downtown Manchester um, and we, you know, did a lot of replanning, green spaces, brought in a real sort of mix of uh, uses um, and just really thought about what does the future of this place look like because there was a big um, out-of-town shopping centre being built sort of six miles away and we were really worried would anyone come back into the city centre. And now, if you, and then... We, you know, we did it in extraordinarily quick time. I mean, Howard, who was chief exec of the council, and Richard Lees, who was the leader. I mean, talk about civic, yeah. the best civic leadership. Yeah. I yeah, mean, it was an extraordinary thing. And, yeah. you know, in adversity, you see the best and the worst of leaders. And it brought out the best in uh, Manchester leaders. And it was an extraordinary time. So fast forward to now and go to Ancoats, and yeah. you would not recognise Ancoats. It's this sort of chichy, regenerated, really... It's still got that sort of gritty, mills, brick, right. northern bit of Manchester, but it's full of really lovely little uh, independent bars, restaurants, and it's just a fabulous bit of Manchester. And Manchester, you know, Manchester still has its problems, and it'll you know regeneration continues forever really but well i think that's um, a very yeah that's an important part of the story which is that it's a great model <clears throat> it, it's a fantastic thing i think the transformation is real profound people criticize and i understand why they say well you know you go a little bit out of the town center you know and there are problems but that's probably always going to be the case in, in with some places but this nobody can doubt that the that the, the the area that that has been transformed has been profoundly transformed, and it became a model for other people. I also think your point is a good one. We must never forget the civic leadership involved in in, in that. I mean, I think uh, you know council leaders sometimes get set aside or ignored, and sometimes kind of deservedly sometimes. But on the whole, I've seen some great leadership, and I, those two you mentioned, you know, they. they Bernstein and, and Lees were just fabulous, really. And I, I so, but they did, they always, I'm not just saying this, they always talked you up too. 
So, you know, because <laughs> I think there was a, a, so tell us a little bit about what you learned and what we all learned, really, I think, because one thing for people listening to understand is so I, I come into the scene of urban generation in around 97, 98. I start working with the Thames Gateway London Partnership. So it's only then that I really switch on to the fact that there is this thing called urban generation going on. And so I look around, you know, in that way that one does to say, well, who's doing the interesting work? And people always pointed me to you, right? So that's, I knew about you before I met you. And I knew what was going on in Manchester. But what do you think we, what we learned from the kind of the, the Manchester transformation, which put, put it one more in, in one more context, essentially attracted the BBC uh, to, to put its, uh, what is some of its major production capacity up in, in the Manchester Salford area, right? I don't think it would have happened without the kind of the trajectory that was started. I think in the in the in the mid nineties. Anyway, what do you think we learned from that Manchester experience? Um, I um, personally, I learned it taught me about purpose. So this the, the whole why we do things, um, you know, and and that sort of getting out of bed every morning and rebuilding a city was just an extraordinary thing about it. it wasn't just a job but it was a sort of you know a mission and getting you know getting a whole city behind a mission like that um and and that that sort of taught me a lot about sort of motivation and how you get people to believe in what you're doing uh, and actually reminding that you're doing it for them and actually you have to listen to what they want it's a sort of it's a partnership approach um i learned a lot as i said about um what good civic leadership and determination looks like and it wasn't just you know the, the bomb it's everything that's happened since you know the sort of the whole um public transport network the regeneration of east manchester and we mentioned and codes these are all great stories after we passed the baton on, after rebuilding uh, the city centre, it was into the Commonwealth Games in 2002. So these are sort of big moments in a city's sort of history and ongoing sort of reinvention of itself, I suppose. Um, and I learned about what real partnership means, bringing the public and private sector together, because there's always this sort of big argument about you know is the public sector better than the private sector and i just sort of think when you bring the best of both together and you know the public sector creates that sort of leadership and creates the environment for the um, and actually sometimes the guardrails because the private sector do need guardrails to create something of real lasting value and we had some fantastic a small number of uh, private sector uh landowners in the in the bombed out area uh, and bringing them together and getting them committed to rebuilding i mean call it enlightened self-interest but they realized that if they all joined in together they could achieve more and actually unlock a lot more value than if they did their own thing so that yeah, was I a think, really yeah and then i think the whole mixed use that whole cities are just as much about the spaces in between the buildings than the buildings themselves. So really thinking about um, how you stitch this new bit of city together and created creating new streets and new squares and actually creating something of beauty. So I remember when we reopened Exchange Square and the area, um, people came and it was the first time I'd ever seen people taking photographs of downtown Manchester. Wow. <laughs> 
That it was yeah. uh, that was an extraordinary moment where you just thought, and with. it was it was this sort of I mean Manchester's a sort of gritty northern city and they have this sort of made in Manchester you know we do things differently here and there's a sort of stubborn pride in the place and um, the whole city rebuilding just sort of tapped into that whole vibe and you realize that actually at the end of the day we look at cities and we see buildings and squares and spaces but actually cities are all about the people that live and work there and love the place. I think one of the things that we must talk about which uh we tend never to talk about enough, I think, which is that I think what you did and, and you, the collaborators and Howard and and Richard and all these people did was actually give a kind of modernised civic pride to Manchester. You know, it's a proud people, proud city, but not enough to be proud of by the 1980s, I think, to some degree. And I, and I think that the way it is now, you know, some people, again, they, they talk about gentrification, but they don't really understand that there's a pride that everybody shares in the region, I think, to for the recovery of Manchester, and I want to talk a bit about the public, public, public collaboration as well as public-private collaboration in that area, because I think what started in that era was the idea that Manchester meant something to Greater Manchester and to the region, um, rather than just to itself, as it were. And you, you coming out of those relationships in that time was essentially leads to the kind of Greater Manchester hookup between nine councils or whatever it is, and then that becomes a city deal. And you know, and and there's a governance revolution in Manchester, which then infected the rest of the country. Actually, in terms of you know the public public collaboration. At the same time, I'll stop after this. At the same time, the 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 private sector. There's a kind of we we forget that when in, when investors are looking for places to go to, there's a kind of sovereign risk in their mind, which is that they they want to know that they're going to be working with people who know how to do stuff and and can help them in the right sense. And that's Manchester. So I think a, a lot a lot comes out of that period. I think that's right, and that I think I mean the the sort of administrative boundary around Manchester is is drawn quite tightly. Yeah. So I think that was quite a moment in the history when they uh, everyone realised actually Manchester is this sort of engine at the heart of the region, but actually we need to join up a, a sort of a much more sophisticated and bigger sort of economic uh, strategy. Um, whether that's transport, whether it's health, whether it's the whole sort of city piece. Um, and that continues to this day, actually, with, as you say, the um, um, all the, the sort of uh, Greater Manchester uh, sort of coming together and having a mayor. And again, that's all part of the sort of devolution of power from Westminster in the centre out to the regions. And, you know, Greater Manchester is a sort of poster child of all of that. So a bracket before we go forward to your next greatest hit, right? So the the, the bracket would be <laughs> the bracket. I, I'm a sort of believer, sometimes against the absence of evidence, but I'm a believer in fast rail to places like Manchester it can like only help. And um, I, I do have a little bit in my head the idea that we did reduce, I think in the government that I work for, I believe this is true, uh, the, we reduced the travel time from to Manchester by like 45 minutes at, at one point and I because it used to be like three and a bit hours or something and then it became two and a half are you a believer in uh do you think it's uh, a not relevant part of the regeneration of a, of a city like Manchester they, they, they don't need things like fast rail and I'm a great believer in uh, public transport and connectivity and it's not just Manchester to London, it's Manchester to Leeds and Manchester to, to Liverpool. Yeah, I think it's hugely, hugely important. Um, where should we go next? Do you want to talk about uh, Sheffield? Do you want to talk about uh, the Olympic Delivery Authority? Because they're all 
They're all great things. Um, What's the best pathway to the, the Olympic Delivery Authority? Um, touch on Sheffield because it's a, it the um, I mean Sheffield is a, another great uh, northern city uh, across the, the the hills, the Pennines in uh, Yorkshire. And they were looking across the Pennines and sort of saying, how did Manchester do that? Uh, and I want, you know, basically, they had a new chief exec. Um, Indeed. Bob Kers, now Lord Kers, Lord like, uh, who, who ended up uh, basically running the, the government many years later. Yeah. Uh, but he was a sort of very um, ambitious young uh, uh, chief exec in Sheffield. And... He basically thought, I want, I want what Manchester's got, uh, and asked me if I would um, go and do the same in Sheffield that we've done in Manchester, but without a bomb. So we set up a very similar um, partnership uh, to sort of spearhead the regeneration of the uh, of the city centre, um, and it was a you know we we pulled together a master plan and a small number of very strategic projects. Um, actually, Sheffield had two universities bang slap in the city centre. So it was a, it was a sort of, it was different, but it was a real sort of test for that sort of collaborative partnership model, bringing the public and private sector together, uh, and the sort of city being at the the centre of that. And it was a way of trying to revive the city centre, which had uh, been in sort of doldrums um, again because of an out of town. Um, shopping centre called Meadow Hill, Hill, Meadow Hill, not Hell, that had been sort of parked on its uh, doorstep, but also many years of this um, decline of the, the yeah. sort of steel industry. So that was that was a really, and that was it again. Part of the model was Sheffield as the sort of the city driver for the wider region that was getting a lot of European. Um, help and support after the sort of decline. Of, this is, th these uh, are, these are, this is all. Industry. This is all in the early days of the first Blair administration, so ninety-seven to two thousand one. Is that right? Is it? The, is that era right? So uh, was That's it just right, that? Yeah. yeah. So because yeah. the reason I mention that it is because the great John Prescott came to Sheffield many times. Yeah. And... yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that what, what, a couple of things came together at this point, which is a, a kind of a new government that was looking for to do something about some of its heartland. Areas and then uh, number two in the government who was passionate, John Prescott, uh, so passionate he will be remembered wrongly and only but wrongly for uh, he's the guy for anybody listening who's the minister that had a go I think uh, maybe even tried to punch uh, some 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 idiot who, had, who threw an egg at him or something uh, in some you know electoral moment but Prescott was great and underrated and I think that. Um, that coming together was good. So you have a good public collaboration at, in Sheffield, another proud city, you know, another place that wanted to find a new civic basis. By the way, if anybody has been to Sheffield or, or wants to think about this, but I realise things can change in urban regeneration. When I first got off the train station at Sheffield uh, and found this rather nice square that had uh, not been there before. And, one of ours. <laughs> no, and I, I, it literally is one of those things where sometimes people kind of diss projects, mere projects, you know, they, they, they think it's all about strategy and process, and it can be, you know, but it's nice to have some evidence of change, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, this is what we mean, this is the proof of concept, right? And it, yeah. you feel different when you see Sheffield Town Centre like that, you know what I mean? It's kind of... I had. I think it has an effect on people's confidence and and and, and pride, actually. And it's thinking about 
about um, you know how people experience a city and those key arrival points yeah. are really really important. They say you know you, you don't get a second opportunity to make a first impression. It's a very good um, point. And that's yeah. and you know Sheffield Sheffield's still got its challenges, um, but it's a really vibrant, buzzy city centre and a lot of um, you know a lot of unlocked a lot of um new sort of housing and people coming and living back in the city center which is the lifeblood of any city you are listening to the grimshaw podcast building the city series the other theme though is the again great civic leadership and you know uh, it's, it's partly the reason i want to stress it is that in the australian dimension particularly um we don't think enough, I think, about local government. And uh, we, we think of it as delivering services rather than being civic leaders about that and with responsibility to place. And I, I just want to say there's some inspirational stories about civic leadership that you and I both know about, and I think yeah. that's great distress. Um, yeah, and if you go to Sheffield, you go to go and stand where they, they knocked down the horrible, it was called the egg box, really um, horrible sort of civic centre. But one of the first things they did was they created this beautiful square called the Peace Gardens. Um, and it truly is a beautiful piece of sort of landscape design. And um, it sort of re sort of put a stake in the ground that this is the heart of Sheffield. And it's beautifully looked after. And it's just, you know, again, it sort of reinforces that sort of the importance of the space in between the buildings and these sort of civics spaces you know that sort of let a city breathe and actually bring people together i think we would call it today wouldn't we and it's become a bit of a cliche but it's a powerful thing which is this placemaking thing right so the you know and and putting kind of livability and placemaking at the heart of a a place this wasn't really done or talked about but i think it's part of what you you were actually doing um so we are now going to fast forward to the uh olympic delivery moment um, just a, a, a little byway is, um, but be, you. Were, I mean, I think it's fair to say part of the reason I do these conversations. I, I, I it's, we learn from people like you, but it's also to be inspired by what people like you have been able to do and the and the relationships you found and the partnerships and the group of people that you work with and all this kind of stuff. So a couple of people that uh, that crop up in this story for an Australian audience again. You know, one of the guys that comes into this story a bit. Is English is um, David Higgins, who um, many people in Australia will remember as the chief executive of Lendlease, and then he ends up uh, becoming the chief executive of English Partnerships, which is like a national urban regeneration thing. He then, I think, his chair at the time was the great Baroness Margaret Ford, or around that time was. Indeed, yeah. And then we. we I, by the way, at this point, I'm a mere supplicant seeking money from uh, English partnerships running a project down in Cornwall. So that's how I get to know David Higgins. And then it all kind of weirdly comes together, you see, because you you and him, he goes off to become the chief executive of the Olympic Delivery Authority once, you know, London gets the Games in 2005. And then you are, you become head of, essentially head of, no, like design and for the Olympic process the whole caboodle so tell me how that happened and then what was what was it like taking that on so it happened um i kept getting this uh phone call so an american woman who was the original chair of the bid 
yeah. uh, Barbara Cassani before yeah. uh, Seb Coe became chair. And she kept, she kept ringing me to say, come, will you come and help us? Because as you well know, the um, the, the site that um, Ken Livingstone, who was the, 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 the mayor of London at the time, was determined that if we were going to have the Olympics, it was going to be in East London. We'd had it twice before in West London and was going to be part of this whole repositioning and regenerating um, the East End of uh, London. Uh, and that meant it was it was sort of a bit on the crack of the A to Z, really, as we call it. It, the, it was a very big site and it covered four different local authority uh, administrative areas. And I think the bid company were just really sort of struggling with the whole master plan and the sort of level of ambition uh, and how to actually get it delivered um, and sort of being able to convince the IOC as part of the sort of bidding process. Um, so she kept ringing me and I didn't want to come back to London and I didn't really know anything about Olympics. Um, anyway, she persuaded me. I said I'd come and work for three months on a part-time basis. And of course, got to, I mean, I'd lived in London for 10 years. I'd never really been to the East End of London, which is a shocking thing to say, really. That is a very bad uh, thing to say, especially, yeah, because cause I, people... I, you know why why I think it's a very bad thing to say because I was working between ninety seven and two thousand and three to get investment into the very part of London that you said you didn't really know very very much about. Yeah. But it's but it's a it's a great place then and it's become a better place now. But carry on. Um, well, it seemed extraordinary, really. Anyway, I sort of uh, went to the site and spent a day walking around this sort of right. vast sort of I don't know sort of. It was quite extraordinary because the you know the towers of Canary Wharf and sort of central London was really on the sort of doorstep, um, and yet it felt like a sort of different world, really, of sort of dereliction. And the local landmark was uh, Fridge Fridge Mountain. It was where all the fridges in London went to die. And and yeah, underneath all the sort of the layers of sort of scrapyards and sort of dirt was this incredible waterways and canal network. You know, it was strategically well placed for transport. It was part of the sort of edgy, hackney, young, yeah. trendy. You know, in a way, there were lots of things happening around the site, um, and I just thought this is a fantastic regeneration project, and the Olympics is a way that we can leverage in enough money to unlock it because there were two great big um, lines of power lines sort of marching right through the middle of the valley and the site. And so it was going to need huge amounts of money to uh, underground the power lines and clean the whole place up and assemble it and everything. And I just thought, this is the most exciting, biggest regeneration project. So I was a bit hooked from that point and worked on the bid, found myself in Singapore well, on that fateful day when Jack Rogg opened the envelope and didn't say Paris, they were mm -hmm. the, uh, the the favourites, and uh, said London. And, you know, the games were coming home, and it was just an extraordinary moment that we'd sort of beaten all the odds, but we had a, you know, we'd set out this incredibly ambitious plan, and the reality then hit of, you know, how we were going to deliver 25 years of regeneration in five with an incredibly um, tight deadline. And uh, so we sort of got on a plane back to London and, well, we were halfway home and um, 
we were changing planes in Hong Kong and found out that there'd been a terrorist attack in London, uh, 7-7. Uh, so we came into it was a very biz- bizarre experience as the high of winning the games. And all the papers had happy faces of athletes and people sort of, you know, the games were coming home. And then on the radio, there was a very different narrative around uh, what had what had just happened. Um, but I'd promised Ken Livingstone that if we did had won the games, I'd come back um, and um, you know work full time for six months and sort of get the show on the roads, set up something that was called the Olympic Delivery Authority, which was going to be the big delivery organisation, public sector delivery organisation. Um, one of the first phone calls was to John Prescott, who you mentioned earlier, who was um, a real sort of mover and shaker in um, Tony Blair's government because we needed money to underground the power lines. And despite what we'd said, we didn't really have all the money together to deliver this big project. Uh, and um, he, he uh, found us the money because that was that was this on the sort of real critical path was moving the power lines and the big cleanup of the site and um we sort of got the got the show on the road but you know the critical thing was finding somebody that would lead it uh, and that's where uh, um uh, david came in and was hired as the new chief executive and uh yeah, I mean, in most Olympics, the average lifespan of a chief exec is sort of, you know, six months or a year, really. They usually become the full guy. So it was quite an extraordinary, you know, David was chief exec all the way through uh, and was brilliant, actually. I saw him in London, in Sydney yesterday. Uh, he's uh, come to a give a talk and a comment with a lot of chat. Uh, I, I wanted to say a couple of things about the political process uh, in a way, because it, uh, it's, it's, it's relevant, I think. The uh, the underrated Prescott comes into the East London story in two big ways, I think. One is he actually beat the Treasury back on putting the Channel Tunnel rail link into Stratford. Um, and Gordon Brown, the Treasurer at the time, was totally opposed, but Prescott was very powerful at the time, um, and all the local authorities it's a bit like the Manchester story in the way that the Channel Tunnel railing brought the East London authorities together, right? To because they've been quite separate, and to, and and to make them think about the strategic purpose of a place like Stratford. So that was going on in the kind of background, and then Prescott again, you know, with the power lines, which was like I can't remember that now, but it was like four hundred thousand pounds a pop or something. I think uh, for each of the power lines, so it was like something crazy that was, uh, you know, and actually without bringing them down, it was implausible to put the the Olympics in that in that in that area, so it was a really fundamental thing that he did. The other thing is the the interesting things around the politics of you know sort of London government, local government, national government, all more all more or less. It's fair to say, and I work for several of them. Uh, you know, hating themselves, hating them at some point, but still working together around this great thing. And there was a kind of governance um peace broke out sort of you know uh so that they all they, they, they kind of all worked together there were moments i know and you would have had it had difficulties with everybody but you know but it was quite a lot of kind of collaboration going on you know the olympics brought people together and the you know the, the it was i think some good stuff comes out of that that collaboration and the legacy of the olympics in Stratford, which is still going on you know i mean people always think there's a kind of cutoff point to, to legacy but the foundations that you put in 
have mean that this place carries on. You know, I, I was in the Olympic Village about um, two months ago, and it's bloody great. You know, I mean, I, I was there like three years ago, and I thought, ah, uh, you know, and now I thought, no, it's I, it's happening, and it's people living there, and it's neighborhoods. Anyway, we'll come back to that. So, so you've got a, you've got a deadline. You've got 2012, which kind of helps, but it's still scary. Um, you know, so what what what, yeah, what the I fundamental thought the deadline was like. I thought the deadline was just sort of like the sword of Damocles over our head, really. Yeah. But in a way, it really helped because the, we couldn't. There was no. There wasn't a moment to lose, um, and we knew that if we counting time in sort of days and weeks at the beginning of the process, we'd be counting sort of every minute and every second because every Olympics runs out of time <laughs> to deliver. But we had to deliver basically twenty five years of regeneration. Um, in yeah in five and and really it was you know it it was the sort of scale of the projects the complexity and the speed because you know we had to assemble the land we had to assemble the land um you know there's a big sort of compulsory yeah. purchase uh, order um and then we had to demolish um, a load of buildings that were on there and we had to relocate people from the site quite a lot of uh, businesses we then had to build one of the largest construction projects in Europe. Then we had to put on two of the world, not just one, but two of the world's largest sporting events because, you know, we had the Olympics and actually the Paralympics. It was a real um, incredible moment in London of the Paralympics yeah. sort of, you yeah. know, really sort of finding its feet literally and was just the most extraordinary uh, moment in sort of Paralympic sport. Then, of course, we needed to deconstruct and make good. And then you had to then pass the baton again. And as you say, the regeneration of the site is sort of still ongoing. And it wasn't just Olympic, the Olympic Park and the venues, it was the village, which is right next door. And then, of course, Westfield, so another major Aussie yeah. player coming in and developing right on top of the station that you were talking about, yeah. um, this sort of um, huge new sort of retail sort of leisure development. Uh, and so you had this sort of um, huge, ex you know, huge sort of scale and complexity uh, and ambition of development all happening on the back of the olympics so it was sort of it's quite a roller coaster ride a lot of sleepless uh, I nights would think so. i mean uh, I, you know i was i was i, I came in and out with various guises so i could see some of this happening and i'd be uh and i ended up working for the government for much of the time and we were like major investors you know but um what i was going to say was the again for people from internationally and from an australian background you know so you've got westfield the the major you know sort of um, shopping center kind of crowd but a big city shaping people right and then you've got the lendley's culture in like in two forms in a sense you've got david higgins the ex-chief executive you've got the lendley's building the olympic athletes village through you know dan labad who we all kind of know and, and then you've got you with your vast experience by this point in doing urban regeneration thing. this is the really top team and i think also so I, used to, I remember asking at the time, you might be interested in this, I remember asking people in in East London, like the guy who ran, the, the, the leader of New England was a great friend of ours. Robert Wales. Robert. <laughs> you know, why, why did they like Lendis? You know, because I was thinking at the time, why hadn't we picked a kind of English company to, to do it? And basically, partly it was the Lendis guys paid respect to the kind of 
civic political culture, but they also knew how to do big city projects, right? And had done the Olympics in, in Sydney, but it wasn't just that. They, they kind of, uh, people might think that, oh, English companies could do that. No, we didn't have anybody at the, at the time in 2000, whatever it was, six, seven, eight, who really had this experience of integrated, you know, teams, big project kind of city transformation stuff. And they were not unique, but they were pretty unique. So Australians yeah. plus Alison plus a bunch of other good people are running a major <laughs> transformation of us, of London. Was, uh, yeah, there were a lot of, I mean, delivering something of this sort of scale and complexity. I mean, it's an extraordinary team yeah. effort. And actually, you need to stitch the team together so that people don't get in the way. Because uh, we were literally not just doing Olympics, but, you know, rebuilding a whole piece of London. So as you were saying, those sort of, the four local authorities that were there, you know, they needed to work really, really closely together. Yeah, um, I mean, we wouldn't even have won an Olympics if it hadn't been for the mayor having a, a sort of London mayor that could, because, you know, the whole of London, you know, the whole of London was hosting the games because, of course, you know, there were, um, you remember there was sort of beach volleyball on horse guards parade, so yeah, right yeah, in the, yeah. the middle of town and sort of horse riding down at Greenwich. So you need, you know, the transport was um, at the beginning one of our potential Achilles heels. So you needed to, you know, you needed to have that sort of strategic view to make the whole city work, all the hotels, the cultural offering, uh, everything. So, and then you had, you know, central government, so you had people like the late, great Tessa Jowell, yeah, you know, it's politicians that stayed the course, and you know, um, we got a lot of political support for the Olympics. And although there were lots of rows behind closed doors, the project didn't become a political football. Not at all. I think it was really everybody knew it had to be delivered. It had to be delivered on time. The world was watching and was yeah. fairly skeptical as to whether we could deliver this thing. And the legacy had to, you know, it was just as much about legacy as it was. It was core. Cool. I think people need to understand this. And you were involved in both, if you like, both helping to deliver the Olympics, but also make sure there was a legacy from the Olympics. And it was a core part of the proposition to get the Olympics in the first place. You know, it was the urban transformation of the east part of London. But it carried on as an underlying theme throughout. And I think also, the again, the local authorities tend not to be written out of the story, but that people don't quite realise that the that they were politically mature and they were trying to get a great legacy for their own their own people and they worked together very well. They did sometimes have fights, but that's pretty inevitable. But they everybody played a good game, I think. I, I was gonna say, if you, if anybody doubts the legacy of these what the, of what could be achieved, you know. In nineteen ninety seven, I've got a slide from that uh, you know, the Thames Gateway London Party of Child Child Councils, one of our brownfield sites to promote was this massive hole in the ground in, in Stratford, right? <laughs> and the idea that you could go there to get today and that there are universities queuing up to, to go there and a, like big innovation uh, jobs VNA, there. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it was just a very difficult place. And the last thing geographically, I want to get, come to the, the Crown Estate. People need to understand that the east side of London was because of the prevailing winds was where the industrial and waste uses of London used to be done. So this is not a glamorous part of town. And I think that, uh, but it was, it's been transformed in a way that I think is still plays attention to the, to the people and the character of the, of the area. And I think people, again, there's a civic pride in the area, actually, 
some people write books and have a go at these kind of things, but essentially, I don't think anybody who lives in the area thinks it's a bad thing. You know, the uh, so I think and the park is great, and there are thousands of jobs, you know, for all kinds of people that were never there before. So I think for me, I mean, there's other things I worry about. You know, but I don't, you know, it's not an easy place in some cases. Affordable housing, people in Australia would be amazed that it, you know. It's like 30, 40% comes in, in the developments. We, we see nothing of that in, in Sydney. So I think that for me, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. And I was, you know, on the edges supporting, but I'm a believer, right? So yeah. that's a brilliant one. So let's move on to the, uh, what happened? Did it you was, get? Um, it was quite interesting because we've just had the 10th anniversary of the game. Yeah. So there's been lots of celebrations and, of course, lots of people writing stuff. And I do think with these sort of big events and all the promises made on legacy, I do think you you need to look back over time yeah. and sort of and and to, to sort of really take a view on whether it's worked and whether we have created this proper new piece of city that's sort of stitched into London and that because I think all all great cities have to have great are a collection of great neighborhoods and so does yeah. it work at that neighborhood scale and doesn't work at the city scale and and actually um, you know we've got fairly negative press at times in this country but actually nearly everybody sort of said um that one of the the, the real successes from london 2012 was the, the the legacy and we we tried very hard to stitch it right in from the very beginning and we even had this sort of you know 75 pence in every pound is sort of being spent on legacy but more importantly than that we thought about the legacy first in everything Thing that we did and we only built we only yeah and we only built venues that had a proper legacy use um so we it's a very authentic thing and i think um one of the ironies of it all given that boris um so boris acquired the olympics in a sense after from his previous owner uh and uh, i was going to say you know again i'm certainly sensitive about the local authority and we, we were involved in doing this convergence thinking about that what we wanted was the people uplift from the olympics so that the uh, the, out, the outcomes of people on the east side of london would, would go up to the london average our slogan was fight for the right to be average and essentially <laughs> but, but, but boris that's really important boris, boris boris supported it and got into in trying to get his agencies to support it and when he went to become prime minister i kid you not leveling up is what we were talking about in terms of convergence in East London, well, he then thought we'd level up the whole of the country, and he just didn't right. quite, he yeah. just didn't quite have the understanding or the wherewithal to really make progress on it all the time, I guess. But anyway, so that's look the build, the picture we're building is you becoming very experienced at this point in time, and then somebody else notices, <laughs> somebody else notices that you might have something to offer, so you end up becoming the chief executive of the Crown Estate. Now you have to tell people what the Crown Estate is. Um. It's it's well, I suppose it's the oldest property company in the world. Really, it sort of got roots back to 1066 and uh, William the uh, the Conqueror. But it's it's effectively um, how do I describe it? It's a bit. It, I suppose the nearest thing will be like a sovereign wealth fund if you're looking at it through a sort of global lens. So this is a very old estate that was sort of, as I say, its, it's modern roots go back to uh, 17, um, 1720. Uh, and the legal owner is the sovereign. Um, 
and all the but all the profits go back into treasury so, so i suppose it's like the people's property company uh, and it's so old that it basically owns uh, huge sways of london's west end so regent street best shopping street in the world uh, it owns um uh, rural large rural estates uh, across the country and in a way most interestingly it owns um the seabed around yes. the, the uk yes. so, so we it's did like, um, like the first 12 miles or something of the of the english and well, Welsh. And, and rights uh, yeah but also rights right out to the continental shelf so mm -hmm. 200 miles out well, to me. sort of proper deep sea so um so whilst a lot of um my focus was um sort of regent street and the the west end so yeah i suppose if the olympics was sort of um yes. open heart surgery yes. what the what the crown estate was was sort of more um keyhole surgery in taking oh, okay. you know some of the some of the best loved bits lots of listed buildings um some of the most fantastic squares and streets in london and just um making you know if you like remaking and regenerating um and actually thinking trying to future proof their portfolio thinking about all the different changes in how people use cities and the sort of mix of uses and transportation digitization um and modernizing uh, the organization uh and then actually doing some really cool stuff um i learned we, we did a lot of innovation on the Olympics, particularly in sustainability. Right. And I took a lot of that passion back to um, the Crown Estate and really wanted to future-proof the whole portfolio. So we, um, And there were some pockets of excellence, um, but we just wanted to be known as a real leader in this. So we were looking at how we took our 8 million square feet in the centre of London and really brought it up to sort of modern sustainable uh, standards um and then how we could unlock the potential of the sea because you know we yeah it, in a way it was a sort of a resource that didn't really have much value financial value obviously had lots of other value um and did some uh, extraordinary work unlocking a whole new industry which is now called offshore wind in which we were a global leader and so yeah. in terms of the sort of um the whole renewable energy revolution that's uh taking place in the uk um we were sort of you know a key play a key player well, I was in say, all of that. for people to understand it's uh, you're already a, like a massive real estate asset base of like 10 13 billion pounds or whatever it is so, you know 20 billion dollars or something you know really kind of big but then you pivot to become a, a, as well a kind of energy company uh, you know in this process you know it's kind of it's been changing well not not so much an energy company but in the same way that you would um do real estate state deals on sort of dry land we sort of did the equivalent in the sea so you would uh look at where the best areas are for offshore wind you know and you'd 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 get people to tender and then do options on the land. And then uh, when the wind farms are built, you you basically take a rent in the form of a percentage of um, the energy that's uh, uh, created by the, the offshore wind farms. Um, but it's, you know, I, I, I reckon in a few short years, almost 50% of the value of the Crown Estate will be coming from 
uh, offshore wind as opposed to when I took up the when I started at the Crown Estate. It was a it was a really small percentage, and Regent Street was uh, was basically cross subsidising offshore wind. Right. It's, it's all if one day it'll be the other way around. So that's a that's a big. That's a great story. Yeah, I think so. And I, I will talk about the sustainability bit as we move towards the end, because I know that's still a passion of yours. I want to ask you, I, the inevitable, um, I was going to say Netflix viewers question, I don't mean about Harry and Meghan, I don't mean that. I mean, what I mean is it's the Crown Estate, right? We forgot to say to people, what is the relationship with the Crown? And what do we mean by that? And did you meet the Queen? <laughs> you have to... So the relationship is really more with government, but the legal owner of the Crown Estate is the sovereign, uh, and it was the late, great uh, Queen Elizabeth II when I was chief executive. And yeah, I used to go and have an annual audience with the chairman. <laughs> uh, and she was really, you know, really interested in the, the long term, when you think about this thing that would be going for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, and that whole concept of stewardship was was really, really uh, powerful and doing business in the right way. Um, uh, and um, yeah, it was it was a real privilege, actually. Uh, and we did some, we always did things through the focus of how do we um, pass on and steward this um, extraordinary organisation um, so that we hand on to our successors in better shape than we inherited it. And of course, the story keeps looping back round, really, but then I handed, um, when I was stepping down uh, after eight years, I wanted to hand the baton to somebody that I really trusted that would get that whole stewardship and sustainability piece um, and the fact that we are doing this i suppose for the nation really i mean it was uh, yeah. commercially very successful but you know it needed to be successful beyond just the, the returns and so handed the band to dan labad who you were talking about earlier um who had been um obviously very senior in uh, lend lease um so he is now the chief exec what I didn't realise when I passed the baton was that he would then be right into the teeth of COVID and ah, yes. life's changed a lot for all of us and many of us in the last uh, three years. I think you would love to hear the phrase that you passed the baton on. I think that is a very good way of putting it. And I do think that you do share a kind of common culture around some of these issues. And I think that's, uh, and, it, and it does sort of suggest, because he's another one, isn't he, of the kind of group that was involved in, you know, he was involved in doing the Olympic Athletes Village. He has a strong background in sustainability from his own career in, in Australia. And there's a kind of, it's, we're talking about a kind of milieu that, that uh, you know, the, you know, lots of individuals form this shared values set, really. And it ended up in really quite important positions of, of able to do things. And I think um, that's great. And I want to ask you a personal question. So um, you use lovely words, I think, correct words, I think. We learned a lot about the Queen after her death, you know, the uh, the whole idea of uh, her commitment, her stewardship, notion of stewardship and the ethical positions that she had. And I was going to say, quietly, you know, she was a kind of epitome of these things. And you you met her, and I think it's a lovely thing. And then did she bestow the, the whatever it's called, the dameship or the damehood uh, on you? <laughs> you are indeed a dame. 
Yeah, no, I was very lucky. She gave me a CBE um, back in 2004. So I, a lot of the regeneration I'd done in uh, Sheffield and Manchester. Um, so I felt very privileged. Uh, and then fast forward, given all the stuff I'd done on the Olympics and then the Crown Estate, uh, she gave me Damehood, which, uh, yeah, was very... Yeah, very special moment. My mum was very proud. I've got, I've got to ask you, do you actually get, I don't know this, do you, do you get to go to the House of Lords and all that stuff or is it uh, separate from? No, 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 no. You you, you you go to the palace and it's a very nice day. But um, no, it, it's, it, I'm, I'm not in the Lords or anything like that. So no, uh, I know too many dames and baronesses now, I realise. The, uh, the... A baroness, a baroness is in, yeah, a baron or a baroness, you would sit in the House of Lords, but... Uh, no. So to to wrap this up, I could talk for a long time. We we haven't talked for ages, and everybody we've learned a lot. I think I want to I want I know that after you did the ages, which is a good stint uh, on the Crown Estate, you uh, you're doing a lot of kind of uh, specific boards. There's certain themes that are interesting. You're on the Barclay Homes Board, which is a great housing provider in my view uh, in in England, and uh, was led by the amazing Tony Pitchley, who unfortunately died. <laughs> 18 months ago yeah. or something I, he was a remarkable man we could talk about him for half an hour so uh but i wanted to, i wanted to ask you to, to tie this up in a way so if you've said a few things about what you think we learned from that because you know in your own career really you know i think without overstating it but i do think it's true that your own career not only tracks this development in urban regeneration but you're actually a major contributor to shaping what we mean by it right so that's that's that what do you think about where is it now? I mean, do we do urban regeneration in, in England at the moment? And what do you think the future of, of kind of, I mean, let's do the big picture thing about where are cities at the moment? How do you feel about the future of cities? But are we doing it? Did urban regeneration sort of stop in the UK uh, around the time of the crash? We, I think we sort of lost our, I think we lost our mojo in, we were really good at this stuff. Um, yeah. And I think I think we're starting to refine it again, and and just to understand that you know you don't finish regenerating a place because the world changes very quickly around us, and you know there are other you know bigger challenges these days, you know particularly around sustainability. So I'm doing a lot on um, climate and sustainability and net zero these days because we've got to. You know, we've got to adapt and reshape our cities to be fit for the fit for the future. Uh, and yeah, I think that the job of regeneration never never finishes. It just sort of adapts and changes, and you know, different challenges along the way. And um, that's what's endlessly fascinating about it. I'm still learning. I still. You know, I still love what I do. I, you know, I now live in the middle of London. Um, I'll live here forever. I mean, I just, cities are such vibrant places. And it's, you know, particularly in this sort of digital age, um, they're just very sort of exciting places to, to be. And the whole, particularly a city, global city like London, the sort of diversity and the, you know, the ever-changing sort of pace of it. And as I say, you know, London is made up of these fantastic neighbourhoods. Um, and it's, well, I know Sydney's great, but London's the best city in the world. On that uncontroversial note, 
Um, <laughs> um, sitting as I am in Sydney and having worked for 25 years in London and loving it's probably London, a bit warmer in Sydney at the moment. <laughs> true, but well, I was going to end by saying the job of urban regeneration and transformation is never over. Um, I'm a bit worried we did take our eye off the ball, and although I think um, I'm, you know, as committed to kind of climate mitigation thinking as anybody else, I did, I do worry that the stuff we were doing around urban transformation, people development, opportunity in regional areas, and all that stuff, we, we'd stopped doing enough of, and I think we, we need to revisit because, you know, some of the places we thought we'd won have gone backwards a bit, I think, in the last 10 or 12 years. So I do think that. I think the other thing I want to do, uh, sort of end on really is, um, is that, uh, you know, that one of the things I've been looking at for the last 18 months and partly on these podcast series is that, that cities have clearly been, was damaged by the COVID and the lockdown experience in, and even in Manhattan today, like it's 50% return in the offices. Um, and it's been 120% return on the roads because people are still avoiding public transport to, to a degree. So a lot of the models that we were building kind of got hit by COVID. They do give us an opportunity to think about things we weren't doing really well and that the maybe we were overheating our our big cities and all this kind of stuff, right? How do you see this this last, this definitely the last question? The, are you an optimist that cities always reinvent themselves? Do you, do you think there's troubles with our city model? Where, 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 where do you sit on this? Oh, I'm a stubborn optimist, but we we need to radically rethink our cities uh, and put people back in the heart of our cities and biodiversity and greenness and make them fit for the future. I mean, the you know we're running out of natural resources, um, you know, climate overheating, lack of water, um, the whole you know continuing to burn fossil fuels, you know the damage that cars are doing to our environment and we need to seriously rewire our cities so they're fit for the future and will be you know much nicer places to to live and you know i don't know how you do that in a city like sydney that is so car you know one of the most beautiful cities in the world but is so dependent on cars and sort of massive roads and fossil fuels and um you know we're we're I think making reasonable strides in in London on clean air and public transport. You know, there's a sort of massive push on electric bikes and last mile and micro transport and you know mass public transport. Um, and we are regreening the city and making it much more sort of pleasant for people to live in. But we have these sort of you know the climate crisis is here and now and the extremes of temperature and the fires the sort of forest fires and we we've got to get real about this um i mean we just had cop 27 and the un uh, sort of um um uh, general secretary what did he say we said we we're on the highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator pedal and we need everyone we're doing a lot on the built environment industry in the uk to realize that we've got to wean ourselves off fossil fuels and you know we've got to find a different path i think implied in all that i agree with all that is the uh is the, the city model of you know sydney is a, a fifth the density of, of london really and um, we have to think really deeply about the city model in, in Australian cities if we to get on top of this kind of a, a agenda. But the irony is when I my first ever job in Sydney in the early 80s, 
the project I was working on was urban densification. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like it's like the it's like the poor. It's a theme that's always with us. And I think, um, but in, look, I was going to say that in the discussions that we're having internationally about these matters, it's always great talking to people like you who've been there, done that, and reflected so eloquently on the experience. Thank you very much for your time and indeed your contribution. So um, it's been delightful talking to you, and we must do it again at some point. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.